listener production. 2011. I'm in hospital. I'm trapped in the intensive care unit. I've got a tracheotomy, which means I can't talk. Uh, a tracheotomy is like a little, little tube in your neck that helps you breathe, but it also has the effect of you're not able to talk when you've got one in. I'm covered head to toe in bandages and I've got tubes all over the place, right? Keeping me alive. Now, this stage of intensive care for me wasn't actually that bad because I was on a lot of pain medication. I was either like asleep or kind of high. But there is one really sharp memory that sticks out. So I'm kind of high on on the pain medication and I see this nurse who comes into the room and she's got this wheelie table that she's pushing in. So she wheels this little wheelie table in and she starts getting busy. You know, she's opening a packet of scissors. She's snipping off the tops of big bottles of fluid. She's ripping off crinkly packages and, and just moving stuff around on her tray, I guess getting set up set up for for what she's about to do. And then she gets these almost shears and she starts snipping away at my leg bandages. I can't I can't see it, but I can feel them falling away. I get hit by this smell and it's so it's it's quite disgusting and rank. And I'm like, where is that smell coming from? Because it it was revolting. And the nurse lifts my leg to obviously clean it and check that it's all good. But when she does that, I can see what my leg looks like. And straight away, that just jolts me out of my high because my beautiful, long, tanned runner's legs are not what I'm looking at right now. My leg is like weird gray color. There's blood clots all over it, my toes are black, and it's incredibly confronting. And at that moment, I had this feeling of revulsion, right? And I realised I was revolted by myself. So I guess the question that you might be thinking is, how did I get from complete and utter revulsion and loathing to a place of contentment and joy and dare I say self-love. I interviewed Lane Beachley on the podcast one day and one section of our chat struck a huge nerve, not just with me, but with everyone who listened. Because a year or two before the absolute peak of her surfing career. The biggest regret I have in my life is that I chose to get liposuction on my what? inner thighs to, to conform to that beach girl body. When did you get liposuction? I was about 23 or 24. What? Yeah. Idiot. It's really hard to believe that a world champion athlete would feel so self-conscious and self-critical of her body. But I guess at the same time, it's not because most women and men have really tricky relationships with their body. You know, in the years immediately following the fire, 
The relationship I had with my body was brutal. My self-love level was literally at zero because you know, I'd found myself in a hospital bed with my physical abilities completely stripped away. I had a pair of scarred limbs for legs. I had clunky hands that I couldn't use. I'd been made redundant from my job. I was socially isolated. My friends were all off doing that, that thing you do in your early twenties, right? When you're working and you're traveling the world and you're having fun and you're sharing photos on social media. And I was stuck in rehab centers going through painful daily experiences and forced to wear this compression mask and compression suit. And on top of that, my spunky boyfriend who I adored was all of a sudden my carer and I was completely dependent on him to do everything, brushing my hair, cutting up my food, feeding me, getting me dressed. I didn't take any pride in my appearance. My daily uniform was one of, you know, Michael's old shirts, pair of baggy track pants and a pair of Crocs. And at that stage, I hated how I looked. I hated how unable I felt. And I hated the platitudes, the platitudes that I would hear from people on a daily basis. Like hearing, you know, beauty is only skin deep from the person at the survey only made me feel worse about myself. So how did I change that? Well, I started really small because the enormity of getting my life back, it was impossible for me to imagine, let alone get into the stage of, you know, liking and loving what I saw in the mirror. And even though now I know that body image isn't just to do with our appearance, back then, doing the tiny things, showing myself some TLC, that made me feel better about myself. So I did the little things. I had a shower every day. My mum would paint my toenails. I bought matching activewear and I wore that over my compression suit instead of Michael's odd clothes. Then I moved on to taking some tiny steps to regain my, my independence and my confidence. I walked around the block by myself. I bought a tricycle and I'd do laps around the cul-de-sac out of, at the front of Michael's house. I went to Woolworths by myself to buy milk. These steps by themselves seem almost trivial. Just like a brick by itself doesn't really mean shit, but it's the bricks on the bricks on the bricks on the bricks that build your mansion. So here's what I want to ask you. What little things help you feel good about yourself? Do you feel good when you've done your hair? Put on mascara. Do you feel good in cool active wear sets or maybe in a nice linen dress? Do you feel good when you've watered the plants or made time to walk your dog at sunset? Doing these little things that make you feel good, they are important. Do more of them. Honestly, there's enough shit in the world that makes us feel bad already. So if something makes you feel good, dancing, cooking, wearing matching pajamas, do it because you don't change by feeling bad about yourself. There's this book called Tiny Habits, and it's written by this guy, BJ Fogg, and he says it best. You change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. So get a post-it note, write this down, stick it on your mirror. I change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad.
the number one thing that changed my relationship with myself was training for an Ironman. I know, <laughs> I know. Pretty boring, hey? But for me, having that big goal, it gave me purpose. It gave me something else to focus on other than how much I hated my body. And I'm not saying that to love your body, you have to train for an endurance event. But I think doing something, something physical, a walking challenge, learning to rock climb, running five kilometers, whatever it is, that helps you to realize that your body as it is right now, it's already enough. It is capable. It can do hard things. It helps shift the focus from what you wish you look like to maybe your body is your vehicle for life and it helps you to move and to do these incredible things. I'm not saying that the minute you start working out and working towards a new fitness goal, you're going to suddenly feel awesome about your body and your life. When I was in recovery, I felt pretty shit going to the gym, getting on a treadmill and walking more slowly than the older man next to me. No offense to older men, but it was just a little bit demoralizing. For ages, I couldn't wear joggers because the wounds on the back of my heels were still raw And like there was no hiding it. I was in my compression mask, compression suit. I stuck out. It was kind of hard to miss me. But day by day, week by week, month by month, I started to feel a little bit better about my body, right? Instead of staring at scars in the mirror, I'd I'd be looking for signs of muscle growth. Instead of feeling sorry for myself which is allowed but instead of feeling sorry for myself I text my friends and say hey guess what I ran a kilometer today and let me tell you the minute I crossed that finishing line having swum 3.8 kilometers cycled 180 kilometers and running a full 42 kilometer marathon the culmination of five years of recovery and training I felt like I was a different person because that goal it got me out of the bed On the days that I felt like shit, it gave me a new appreciation of what my body could do beyond just what it looked like. And the confidence I got from that entire journey, it was huge. You know, it made me realize that yes, I'm capable of doing something hard. I'm capable of doing hard things. So that's why when someone asked me how I went from that hospital bed, hating my body, hating my life, hating how I looked to a place of acceptance and confidence and pride in my body, I answer doing an Ironman because something that challenges you, it gives you all of that. It gives you confidence. It gives you self-belief. It gives you energy. You get all of that in spades when you take on a physical challenge. And for me, that's been one of the great pleasures of creating Run With Terea, my running program for mums. Because when I help women of any age, any fitness level, learn to run or return to running, I also get to see them learn that they can do hard things, right? I get to see them achieve more than they ever thought was possible. I get to see their perception of themselves change and I get to see the growth in confidence. So if you want to change the way you feel about yourself, try picking a physical goal sign up for a dancing class, you know, do ice skating, whatever it is, do something physical that forces you out of your comfort zone. It's going to help you see your body and what it is capable of in an entirely new way. And that is a great place to practice self-love from.
was a kid, I had really bad eczema. I used to have to slather myself in moisturizer and sometimes wear like these little white cotton gloves to school. And of course, <laughs> if you're a kid and you're wearing white cotton gloves to school, you're going to feel self-conscious. And my dad would always say to me, he'd say, Taria, if you ain't it and you walk into the classroom with your head held high, no one else will say anything to you. All the other kids have got their own issues to worry about. Now, he wasn't intentionally being disparaging. It's how we're wired, right? We're wired to think about ourselves. And if you want proof, like say you go to a party on the weekend and the next week someone sends through photos from the party and everyone's like, hey, I got some really good photos and I'm sending them to you. And what do you do? You open them up and then who is the first person that you look at in that group photo? It's you, right? And I'm not saying you're an egomaniac. I'm just saying that every single person on the planet is a little bit self-absorbed. Here's the thing, there's always going to be something about yourself which you don't really love. That's okay, we're human, we're not perfect. I usually have a couple of operations a year and after each operation, I'm sore and red and inflamed and when I have laser surgery, especially on my face, like my whole face is is scabby and red. And a couple of years ago, I had laser surgery and I had a speech booked the next week. And I had to travel for this speech, which meant I had to go to an airport, basically see a whole bunch of people and randoms. And strolling through that airport, I felt like everyone was staring. Everyone was staring at me. I don't know if they were or if it was in my head, but it made me feel, made me feel inadequate, made me feel like I had something to be embarrassed about. I knew I didn't, but that's how I felt. So what did I do? Well, I followed my dad's advice. I walked tall, I walked proud, pretended like I didn't give a fuck, even though I did, and I owned it. Because here's the thing, if you can't own yourself, if you can't own your challenges, if you can't own what makes you different and unique, no one else will be able to do it for you. And so what does owning yourself mean for you and your self-love journey? Well, in the most basic terms, it means backing yourself and deciding that if you want to do something, you're going to do it. If you want to run, but you're worried about people seeing you and thinking you don't look like a runner, owning yourself is saying, fuck it, and putting on your joggers and going anyway. Owning yourself is going out into the world and deciding who you want to be on your terms and doing it, no matter what other people think, and no matter what, you know, that little voice inside your head tells you. Now, that's all easier said than done. I know, I know. And there's going to be some work involved. And for me, the work was doing those little steps, you know. The work was forcing myself not to run away when the postman came to the door. The work was walking around my block without my mask on. The work was doing makeup courses, trialing different outfits, seeing you know what I was and wasn't comfortable with. The work was surrounding myself with people who made me feel good about just being me. The work was going to a psychologist every week. You know, it was a process of getting comfortable slowly with the new me. And so for you doing the work, it's gonna be all about the baby steps. If you've always wondered what it would be like to run, Start small. Go for a five-minute shuffle or jog. 
If you dream about traveling to Europe on your own, but you don't feel confident about eating at a restaurant by yourself, start smaller. Take yourself out for lunch. If that's too hard, like sit down on your own for a quick coffee. If you don't feel confident in shorts, that's fine. You know what? That's actually your prerogative. But if you want to feel confident in shorts, start small. Wear three-quarter pants. See how you feel. Get used to that. And then wear pants that are just a bit shorter. When you come up against something that you don't think you're confident enough to tackle, find a baby step and start there first. Owning yourself. Yeah, it's going to take practice. But it is, in essence, Just another skill, like driving or tennis or mahjong, and you're nailing all of those. And so if you're doing the work and you're consistent, you will get better at it. I promise you, you'll get better. There will always be someone who's better looking, smarter, funnier, richer, or nicer than you. I'm sorry, (laughs) I'm sorry, but there will be because all of us have got things that we're great at and these are skills that we've developed over years at work or in our personal life. For example, let's say you're good at crocheting. This probably means three things. Number one, you're more interested in crocheting than let's say I am. Number two, You spend more time crocheting than other people who aren't as interested in it. And number three, that means you're putting in more energy and more time into crocheting. So if I turned around and thought, wow, it's so not fair that you're so good at crocheting, it actually is fair because think about how much effort and time and dedication and attention that you put into crocheting. And so here is the truth. You can do anything but you can't do everything because your attention, your focus, your energy, your money, and your time are all finite resources. So if you spend them on becoming the world champion of chess, that probably means that you can't simultaneously be the world champion of surfing. So comparing yourself to somebody else doesn't make a whole heap of sense because you've got no idea what they've decided to spend their finite resources on. Just because it doesn't make sense, it doesn't mean we're able to stop comparing ourselves to others easily. It's normal. But here's some ideas for you to try. Number one, you can just accept it. You can accept that comparison is very normal, doesn't mean it's helpful or productive, but all of us do it from time to time. Number two, you can remind yourself that social media is just a highlights reel, Social media only shows one fraction of someone's life, not the full spectrum of highs and lows they're experiencing, just like you. And on social media, check in to see how you're feeling before and after going on it. And if you feel worse after having a scroll on the gram, may I kindly suggest that if you're feeling a bit vulnerable or a bit crap one day, Maybe don't go on social media. Maybe you could read a book in the sun or have a cuppa with a mate or go for a relaxing walk. Number three, you can practice gratitude. Think about what you're grateful for in your life and don't say, Taria, there's nothing because there is a reason that you're listening to this right now. Maybe you were suggested this podcast by a good mate and their friendship could be something to be grateful for. 
Maybe you're on your way to work and you've got a whole seat to yourself. Boom, there we go. Something to be grateful for. Maybe you're on your way to your family's house for dinner and your mum's cooking and she's a great cook and you realise that if you didn't have the family that you have, then you wouldn't be the person that you are. Gratitude, I know it's corny and it can sound trite, but it works because you're you're focusing on the positives. That helps you to develop a more positive mindset. And there are so many studies that have been done on gratitude. I'm not going to list them all here. Basically, grateful people have better relationships, they're less stressed, they sleep better, they have higher self-esteem, and in general, they're more satisfied with life. So it's good shit. And whenever I go down the comparison drain, I stop, I take a moment, and I think about what I'm grateful for in my life right now. And I think about the relationships that I have. I called a mate to say that I wouldn't be coming to her wedding. And she was so understanding. Like, she didn't make me feel bad. She said, Taria, it's so fine. I love you and I understand. I think about the good that I'm looking forward to today. You know, this afternoon, I'm going to take my son to swimming. I love that. A couple of years ago, I found myself in New York. I'd gone there to go to the premiere of an NBC documentary that had been made about, a bit about me and my life and about my experience doing the Ironman World Championships. So I was really excited. And so on the night of the event, all gussied up for the party, I left my hotel room and I went across the street, started walking down the subway steps. As I was walking down those dark and dank subway steps, I realized that I had forgotten my FPOS card in my room. I just had 20 bucks in cash. And maybe for you, that wouldn't be a problem, right? You just think, sweet, too easy, I'll just pay cash. But I started to feel nervous because my hands were badly damaged by the fire, makes it difficult to hold coins. I always feel really awkward fumbling with change when it's handed to me. So I just avoid that situation at all costs, literally. But I was running late. I didn't really have any other choice except to pay cash for my ticket. So I joined the queue. And in the queue, I can hear the ticket seller, and he sounds like an absolute arsehole. He's yelling at people for being in the wrong place, being in the wrong queue, having the wrong money, and I'm getting more and more nervous. And so I come up with this idea. After I get my subway ticket, I'll just leave. I'll smoke bomb. I won't worry about hanging around to get my change. And so when I'm at the front of the queue... I ask the guy for a pass to Midtown and he yells at me because I don't have the right money, but I just smile because I know I've got a plan and I give him the $20 note and he gives me the subway pass, starts to count out the change and it's at that point I leave. I don't want to extend this transaction, this interaction any more than I need to. But he starts screaming at me. He says, come and get your goddamn change. Your change is clogging up my goddamn desk. Come back here and get it. It's a really busy subway station. People are staring at me. 
I don't really know what to do. So I walk back and I say, uh, sorry, mate, I actually can't pick up the change. Uh, if it's all right, can you just keep it? And that just sends him off even further. He starts screaming again. He says, you think I give a shit? You think I can't get it off my goddamn desk? I don't want your goddamn change. And I feel so flustered, so ridiculed by this one interaction that I burst into tears. The middle of a subway in New York surrounded by hundreds of strangers, I stop where I am and I start to cry. I was travelling to the NBC premiere of the Ironman event that I had successfully competed in and in that moment it felt as if all of the work I had done up until that point was futile because I, I couldn't do this very simple, this very mundane task of taking my change for the subway ticket. And it's really easy for us to own the big moments in our story, the glorious moments, the moments which are immortalised in the media or in the news or getting a shine in your award. It's actually really hard to own the small invisible moments, the days where you feel like a failure, when you forget to take your kids to gymnastics or you miss a deadline at work or you look in the mirror and you just don't like what you see. But owning yourself, that means you've got to be able to own all of it, the good and the bad. And so self-love is accepting yourself for who you are but also recognising that you are a work in progress and that you are allowed to evolve and still love yourself for who you are, even if there's parts of you that you wish were different. So I want you to remember this. As you start working on your relationship with yourself, it's okay if you feel insecure from time to time. You're a work in progress. You are allowed to be imperfect. I'm Terry Pitt. Thanks heaps for checking out the podcast. If you're new, big welcome. You can hit follow and you'll never miss an episode. Listener.